Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for June 11th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about some breaking DC movie news and discuss what we've been doing in the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Writer Swytran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. Okay, before we get into the Water Cooler Monday, uh, let's talk about some breaking DC news, and that is that Jeff Johns is being replaced by Jim Lee as the chief creative officer of DC Entertainment. Jacob, uh, you wrote some of this news up for the site. What do we know? All we know is that uh, Jeff Johns, who was kind of being positioned by Warner Brothers, almost as their their Kevin Feige-esque figure, the creative mind of the DC movies, is stepping down as president and um, chief creative officer of DC Entertainment. And it's not like he's being like fired into oblivion. Uh, he is uh, starting his own production company called Mad Ghost Productions, uh, but definitely feels like a changing of the guard because he's been sort of the creative face of DC Entertainment since 2010. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people, myself included, thought we'd be seeing him overseeing a big DC movie universe, and that just didn't happen. And Jim Lee replacing him is interesting. Jim Lee was a, is a uh, superstar artist. If you were reading comics in the 90s, you know Jim Lee's work really, really well, and he's still working today. Uh, but like uh, Jeff Johns, he became so influential uh, as a creative that he became an executive. So him taking over is interesting. I'm curious to see if he can succeed where Jeff Johns did not. And there's like some rumors and scuttlebug around the internet about how um, unhappy Warner Brothers was with... Uh, Jeff Johns' approach to the DC movies. Uh, that's, that's Kyle Buchanan from Vulture reporting that. But I guess the, I don't want to like dwell on the um, tabloid stuff like that, because I think that the real story here, if you think people really want to hear about, is that um, Mad Ghost Productions, Johns' new company that has a deal with Warner Brothers, is going to uh, prioritize the Green Lantern Corps movie, which was announced at Comic-Con in 2015, and has been sitting on a 20, 2020 release date for years now. 
and Johns will produce and write Green Lantern Corps. And this is exciting news if you're a comic book fan because uh, Johns wrote Green Lantern for nine years, and it is the definitive Green Lantern run. I mean, if you go back over the decades and uh, 50 years of Green Lantern stories, you're not going to find another writer who knows this world, this corner of the DC Universe as well, someone who's told so many stories this long. Uh, Jeff Johns is the definitive Green Lantern writer, and even though he was a co-producer on the abysmal 2011 Green Lantern movie, he did, really didn't have much of a say in that movie uh, on, on a much larger level than just maybe being a voice in the background. So him uh, stepping away from being executive and saying, I'm going to spearhead this Green Lantern movie is actually genuinely thrilling because there's on the page, Jeff Johns' Green Lantern reads like Star Wars in the DC universe. It, it has that kind of scope. And if they can make that happen, I think we're in for something really exciting. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I don't want to <laughs> spend too much time on this, but uh, the cynical side of me says that, you know, uh, Johns was pushed out and this producing gig is to, like, soften the blow. It's kind of like how Hollywood kind of handles these things. Um, but, uh, you know what, Johns, when he was announced uh, for this position, I, I never, as much as I like Johns in the comics, uh, I never thought that he was going to be great for this job because uh, he's a creative and these corporate manage management positions um, and creative positions require like very different, uh, you know, skills and talents. And uh, I think Jeff Johns will be better suited in a more creative, um, you know, pr producing realm of uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what he does with the DC universe. I do too. I, I think this is a good choice. I mean, as we all, I don't think anybody's happy with the DC movies at this point. After Justice League, uh, everybody feels burned by it. So, I think just having a fresh start and letting uh, Jeff Johns do what he does best is probably the right choice. Yes. Uh, okay. Let's move on to the water cooler. Everybody, join me over in the corner uh, by the virtual water cooler, and we can talk about what we've been up to. Uh, for, I'll start things off. Uh, this past week, I was lucky to see. Piff the Magic Dragon perform at the Magic Castle. Uh, for those of you who don't know Piff from his uh, appearances on Fool Us or America's Got Talent, he uh, is a magician who dresses in a dragon suit. He uh, is a comedy magician. He is hilarious. His um, I I've seen a lot of his TV work, but this is the first time that I got to see him in person. And uh, he has this dog, Mr. Piffles, which is a chihuahua that he also dresses up as a dragon. And uh, his act live in person um, is a lot more edgy than the stuff we we've seen from him on network television and cable television. Uh, for example, the, the, the show leads up to the, the end finale is uh, Mr. Piffles doing of the bullet catch. So they select someone out of the audience to hold a gun up to this dog and for Mr. Pitfalls to catch the bullet in his mouth, which is, uh, <laughs> I saw people squirming in their chairs. It, it, it was hilarious. Um, and it was great to see him, uh, finally in person perform, uh, next time in, Ve in Vegas. He, he, from time to time has, has a show there. I'm, I'm hoping to catch the whole thing because the magic castle thing was just like a 40 minute show. And I think he has a, uh, a bigger uh, show show in Vegas. Moving on from dogs to cats, Jacob, what have you been up to this weekend? Uh, I've been up to my knees in cat poop because I bought or adopted, I'm sorry, a uh, new cat. Uh, he's a, not sure how old he is. Uh, he's very small, uh, so we think he's under a year. 
So maybe he's a kitten, maybe not quite, but he's on that cusp. Uh, his name is Fitzgerald J. Catsby, or we call him Fitz around the house. And we adopted, adopted him because a friend of a family friend who has a ranch out in the countryside, somebody ad- abandoned Fitz on her property. It is, it is this uh, little Siamese kitten. Um, and the owner of the ranch said, oh, I'll, I'll keep him as a barn cat. I live in the barn and hunt rats with my other cats. And she put him in the barn and he started getting thinner and thinner because she realized that he didn't like hunting. He didn't like um, doing anything except trying to get into the house and the doors open and trying to relax inside the house. So realizing that he was not cut out to be a barn cat, uh, she reached out to some friends. We got in contact with us. Uh, we already have a Siamese cat named Fred, who you occasionally hear on this show um, in the background. Uh, and we decided that, you know, I don't know how people feel, how people listening to this own cats. or uh, But when you buy a second dog or adopt a second dog, uh, you're getting a second dog. You're dealing with two dogs. But a second cat is like having 1.5 cats. It doesn't stack <laughs> quite the same way. It's much easier to take care of two cats. So we decided... Um, we'll add another animal to the menagerie, and we went and picked him up. We brought him home, and he's very thin. Uh, he's recovering from being uh, neutered, and from uh, he had um, mites and fleas there, and, uh, so he has like little scabs from those. But he's currently free of those. But he's very sweet. He's already shown the dog who's boss, uh, Fred, the older Siamese cat, who's about eight, uh, does not like Fitz yet. He, he hisses whenever he walks by, uh, but. We're working on it. They're, they're, they're going to like each other and be best friends in a few weeks. That's the plan, at least. Every time I see a picture of a Siamese cat, I always think of that song from Lady and the Tramp, the Siamese <laughs> cat song. Which I, I it, hate that song. You hate that song? <laughs> I mean, is that song racist at this point? Well, All it right. is racist, but also it just really traumatized me as a kid because I really hate seeing characters being unfairly sort of like blamed or framed. And that that song just like... I don't know, really <laughs> rubs me the wrong way. So I can never like a Siamese cat because of that. Brad, what have you been up to? Not really anything all that exciting. Okay, moving on. Except- <laughs> Although I'm sure uh, Fitz is lovely, Jacob. No, I think I, I, I've realized over the past few months, I think I'm a dog person. Uh, after years of I was a cat person, I, I, uh, my dogs, uh, Jack and Carl, made me realize how much I like dogs and how much I enjoy their company and how much I like their personalities. But the only cats I've ever encountered who match dogs for me are Siamese cats. They're noisy. They're, they have so much personality. They want attention. They want love. Uh, a Siamese cat is, is is as interested in you as a dog is. And after oh. years of being around cats who are sort of distant and like want to be on their own until they want food, <laughs> which is, I guess, part of the joy of a cat, um, I found myself falling in love with how Siameses were are cats who uh, want to please and want to be pleased, and they will make themselves known at all times in ways that I find hilarious and cute. I actually grew up with Siamese cats. Uh, we had two when I, like, pretty much my entire time that I lived at my parents' house before I went to college. Um, and they were awesome. And yeah, they're definitely cats that have personalities. Brad, what have you been up to? I have been doing vaguely interesting things, I guess. Um, so the, uh, one thing that I did was, uh, I've been reorganizing my office. Brad, I don't think reorganizing your office is interesting. Well, it might not be to you, but <laughs> for me, I like moving my stuff around. <laughs> um, no, I, so I, I, I've had a treadmill for a while, but I haven't really liked where it's been. And so I finally decided to 
move it into my office and kind of reorganize things. And just so like that required me moving around shelves and figuring out a new space for my desk just so I can maximize the space and have enough room for it. And uh, so it's required me moving stuff and like reorganizing things on shelves so that they look aesthetically pleasing since I have a bunch of, you know, Ghostbusters and Star Wars and other collectibles that are on display. And so just I, I actually always kind of had fun have had fun figuring out the best way to display those kinds of things. So as much as I hate moving furniture and stuff like that, I don't mind the reorganizing of items on shelves. It's kind of a, I don't know, I guess a little therapeutic, I guess you could say. For sure. And then uh, I was also really happy that last week I was able to get my hands on NECA's new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie action figures. Uh, These are seven-inch action figures that look exactly like the Ninja Turtles from the original movie from 1990. Uh, the closest they ever came to making action figures look like these were was around the time that the third Ninja Turtles movie came out, and they made like these movie-style uh, action figures that were kind of on the same quality of their normal Ninja Turtles line, but they were less cartoonish. But because the Turtles started to get a little bit more detail on their skin as the movies went on, like little like reptile splotches and stuff, the figures also had those things, but it made them look like they had some kind of weird illness, uh, even though they were trying to make them look more realistic. But these just look fantastic. Uh, I'm, they're, they're Comic-Con exclusives, but NECA did three days last week where they had a very limited select amount available for pre-order if you were uh, fast enough and online at the right time. And so I, I was able to get one on the third day, and I'm so excited to finally get it once it ships after Comic-Con's over. Very cool. Uh, I can't wait to uh, just check these out in person at Comic-Con, which is coming up at a speeding pace at this point. Um, HT, you've been reading over the weekend? Yeah, I kind of accidentally fell into like a long reading binge. uh, And it was because... So I last week I wrote up some casting news about His Dark Materials, uh, the BBC adaptation of the Philip Pullman trilogy. And this was one of my favorite series as a kid. And while I was writing it up, I got really excited and I was like, okay, I'm going to pull out my my old uh, Golden Compass book and maybe just like skim it over a little bit, like get a refresher. And then I accidentally started reading the whole thing and before I knew it it was 3 a.m. and I was like halfway through the subtle knife and I was like oh okay I guess this is what I'm doing this weekend uh, so it was it was really fun to reread the trilogy just because this was a um, actually a fun little tradition that I used to do when I was a kid is that I first read the trilogy when I was in about fifth or sixth grade I think it was fifth grade and the the, the series goes through some like pretty heady uh subject matter, things like human consciousness and dark matter and alternate universes and uh, original sin. Uh, And so a lot of those concepts kind of went over my head when I first read it and I didn't understand it at all. So I decided to reread the whole thing again next year and I reread it again the year after that and the year after that. And it became sort of like a fun little tradition for, for me to do that every year. I think I kept it up for like a good five years. Uh, and um, I hadn't reread it since high school, I think. And rereading all of it again was just like a little fun jaunt down memory lane and uh, seeing if the series held up as it did when I was a kid. And it really does. It's really well, oh, excuse me, really well written. Uh, and has, even though sometimes the sci-fi concepts clash a little bit with like the religious metaphors that Philip Pullman is going for because, you know, the series is an inversion of Paradise Lost. Uh, and he has a lot of ambitious sort of subjects going on going on in there that 
don't really sometimes jibe through, but it's it's really it's a really great series that um, I felt a nice sort of warm rush going through again and having that old book smell. So I I finished rereading all of those books over the weekend um, and kind of just stayed inside the entire time rereading them. And uh, yeah, they're like 400, 500 pages each. So it was kind of like a, a long accidental reread, but I'm really happy that I did that. Uh, and coincidentally, I also went to Barnes & Noble and picked up um, Dark Matter by Blake Crouch, which is not related to his dark materials, but has sort of somewhat similar plot. It was a book that I kind of started reading when I was just hanging out in Barnes and Noble one day. And uh, it's about some, an old, uh, like a college professor who um, essentially uh, like ends up in an alternate timeline where his, he had chosen a different path and was, working on some different huge project that was top secret and uh, is trying to get back to the world where he came from. So I picked it up at the Barnes and Noble because I was, was reading it a little bit there and was really interested and uh, happened to just be by Barnes and Noble again after I finished His Dark Materials and pick it up. And so I'm now reading that. Yeah, it's had... currently being adapted into a movie, Roland Emmerich. Uh, is announced. it? Yeah, 2016. I'm uh, looking at the article on SlashFilm.com. Uh, Roland Emmerich, uh, the director of Independence Day, uh, has uh, plans to make it. Uh, we haven't heard anything since then, but that was that was what was announced. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it's pretty interesting so far. I don't think I've ever fallen into reading an entire book over the weekend. Never mind a trilogy of books. <laughs> <laughs> that that is pretty insane. Um, but let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, last week, I got to watch uh, both Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and The Incredibles 2 in in one single day. I talked about that previously because we did early buzz uh, discussions last week on the podcast, so I'm not going to uh, you know reiterate what I said there. Uh, but I will say after being given a week, I am kind of itching to to revisit Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. I wasn't so hot on it the first time I saw it, but I it's sticking with me and I want to give it a second shot. Um I did get to interview uh both the directors, uh Brad Bird and JA Bayona um last week as well. Um and I thought I would uh, give you a peek inside the, you know, the glamorous world of movie junkets. Uh, I interviewed Brad Bird at the beginning of the day, uh, and uh, usually when we go into these interviews, we're trying to ask questions that are not the usual questions so that, you know, when you read the interview on SlashFilm.com, you aren't reading the same, you know, answers that you get on, you know, every other movie website. You know, what? why did you want to do this movie? You know, whatever. Um so I, you know, we usually try to come up with some creative questions, uh, and uh, this time we got some great answers. You, you'll be able to read the interview on the site uh, later this week. Uh, but it's interesting because usually I get to do the interviews at the end of the day. This time it was at the beginning of the day before they do this big press conference where uh, all the outlets, including outlets that didn't get one-on-one interviews come into a uh, press conference like area probably like 100 people and they get to ask you know the cast and crew questions about the movie and uh it was interesting because uh two of my big questions were asked during uh, during the press conference and the answers were you know uh almost verbatim what was my interview so it's uh it's kind of like uh oh you're gonna read the same content elsewhere but from a press conference now uh which is which is you know, just part of the job. That's just how it goes sometimes. Um, 
But uh, yeah, anyways, you, you'll be able to read it later this week. Uh, there's some interesting stuff there. And I did ask uh, Brad Bird how he felt about Iron Giant being used as a weapon in Ready Player One. So you can uh, hear his uh, his answer to that and much more in, in the interview. Um, and uh, lastly, uh, what I've been watching, I, I finally caught up to the last three episodes of Westworld. Uh, as you know, previously on this podcast, I've been saying that this season of Westworld has not been exciting me as much as the first season. And um, Kitcher has been out of town taking care of her sick mother. So I've been putting off watching the show, maybe because of that, but also because I haven't been super excited to watch it. Um, and I caught up uh, this season. I, I can I can agree with Chris. So I think er- earlier said that it's a much easier to binge watch them than it is to watch it week to week this season where the first season I, I, I love the process of seeing a film, seeing an episode and having the water cooler discussion week to week and theories. Uh, so I, I did get more out of these episodes, seeing them back to back, but I do want to put some love towards last night's episode, which was probably the best episode of this season. Um, it's so good, uh, emotional, uh, so well-written, um, I, 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 you know, anybody who's given up on the series at this point, this season, cause I know it's, the season's been testing people. I would say, you know, stick with, with it and just to get to this episode because it was just so great. Uh, did, did anybody else here watch last night's episode of Westworld? Well, no, Chris I did because I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Um, I, no, I, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, um, it is the best episode of this season and maybe just the show in general. Um, but I have like a, you know, a, a nitpick with it in that it's, it's an anomaly. Like this show, this episode is so good because it does something completely different. And, you know, next week the show is going to be back on its bullshit, so to speak. So as much as I loved it, it kind of bothered me because I was like, Oh, this is great. Why can't the show be this instead of, what it's turning into. So uh, I agree that it was fantastic, but it, you know, it, it comes with that caveat, the caveat that, you know, they're going to have to go back to the story they're already telling. That's just not as interesting as this was. Yeah, I know. I, I agree with that. I do like how it kind of, um, it filled in some gaps of some stuff that it were bought, you know, hanging threads from season one. And it was just its own emotional, almost like a bottle episode. Um, but yeah, it, it was great. Uh, Brad, you finally got to see Incredibles 2. I did. Last week, uh, Chicago had their press screening. Um, and this was cool because this doesn't always happen, but they were able to accommodate guests for this one. And um, I was able to actually bring my whole family. So my parents and my uh, teenage sister accompanied me. And so we got to see it as a, a family, watching a superhero family, which was really fun. Uh, everybody enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, everyone in my family uh, thinks that it's just as good as the first one, which I would definitely agree with. I don't think it's better than the first one, but I think it's right on par with the first one, which Peter obviously disagrees with and uh, has some wrong opinions about. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was really fun. I, I always like when I get the opportunity to let my family get in on, on the perks of this job, especially since... The last time they were able to get in on the perks of the jobs, we went to the world premiere of Transformers the last night, which was fun because it was a world premiere, but also not fun because, you know, it was a Transformers movie. Um, so, yeah, so that was that, that was uh, just a cool thing that I was able to do with them. 
Um, and what, and the, what, what did you think of the, of the movie? Oh, I think Incredibles 2 is fantastic. Uh, like I said, I think it's just as good as the first one. I, I Jack nuts. Jack. Yeah, no, I'm not though. I'm completely right. Um, Jack Jack is definitely a scene stealer. Uh, uh, Peter, you mentioned I think on Twitter that you would like to see a short with Edna babysitting Jack Jack, just like there was a short with the babysitter and Jack Jack from the first one. And I wholeheartedly agree. I want to see what those two did while they were hanging out because that that dynamic is uh, hilarious when you when you see it happen. Um, but yeah, I think it's fantastic. The the action sequences in this movie are just as good as any normal superhero movie. It's still got a lot of heart to it. It's it's hilarious. And yeah, it's everyone's going to love it when it comes out this weekend, for sure. I saw Ocean's 8 this weekend, which um, was enjoyable, but not nearly as good as I hoped it would be. I just kind of hoped it would pop a little bit more. I wanted the characters to be um, as defined and memorable as the characters from the original Ocean's trilogy. It didn't really feel like they had much beyond you know their own signature style visually like their characterization just didn't feel like it was as richly drawn as the other oceans movies and it just everything kind of just felt too easy and you could argue that it's because they're good at their job but like you could see that they tried to introduce conflicts throughout the heist but it was never anything where you felt like you were uh watching them like go with the flow and try and figure out how to solve a problem in the way where the Ocean movies kind of made you think things were going wrong and then pulled the rug out from you and be like, oh, no, this is part of the plan. And there was never really a lot of that here that left you wondering what's happening. Everything just kind of goes off mostly without a hitch. And there's not really anything exciting about it, you know, um, like there, the, there's a, a distinct lack of conflict in the heist. And not not, not I don't mean that as far as among the characters, like having conflict or arguing or you know, having bickering or things like that. I just mean the heist itself and trying to pull it off. Um, and I just, and honestly, the chemistry between everybody, I didn't think like sizzled as much as the chemistry with the uh, the Ocean's Eleven cast. Like it just felt like they worked well together, but not in a way that made me feel like you know this was a great team or anything like that. So. I don't know. It's definitely enjoyable, but not something that I was over the moon for or anything like that. You know, this is interesting. I haven't seen this movie yet, but half the people I know have your response, and then half the other people I know like really liked it. Like, and it, it's I don't know. It's a very weird, uh, divisive film. It seems. So I'm, I'm interested to check it out. Um, what, what else have you been watching, Brad? Uh, and then I got around recently to watching uh, the Majorowitz stories, new and selected, on Netflix. It's, it's been around for a while, but I've never taken the time to watch it. Uh, it's a Noah Baumbach movie starring Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, Dustin Hoffman, Emma Thompson. And uh, it's good for the most part. Um, the first hour and a half I really enjoyed, and then it, it feels like it kind of loses focus and gets a little disjointed in the last 20, 25 minutes, like, almost like... He didn't really know how to wrap up the story very well, um, but the characters are very well-crafted. Noah Baumbach has this great knack for creating flawed, dysfunctional families um, and making characters that are despicable, really, without making you entirely loathe them, um, even though they're definitely not great people. So, uh, And the performances are great. It's, it's easily one of the best Adam Sam- things Adam Sandler has done in you know the past 15 to 20 years, probably. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, I think it's worth checking out just to see the the performances, but the movie as a whole didn't entirely come together for me. And Jacob has been busy going to movies with low cinema scores. 
<laughs> uh, I've been going to movies that are the best movies of 2018. Uh, specifically, I saw Hereditary again. And I've talked about this movie before, and I've written about it before. It is my favorite horror movie in a long time. And it's currently my favorite film of the year, Edging Out Annihilation. Uh, seeing it again with the crowd was amazing. Uh, there's one shot here. I'm not going to spoil it. But both times I saw it, uh, saw the movie, the audience was not sure what they were looking at. And you started, and then you notice in waves, different pockets of the theater would notice what they're looking at and start like screaming or gasping all at different moments as the shot lingered on this thing. And it's being in the crowd when this, when this happened twice was just like, which was just remarkable. Uh, the command on display, the craft on display, even if you don't like the movie, if it doesn't work for you as a experience, uh, director Ari Aster, he's, he's the, the real deal. The, his command of tone and of menace and dread here is unreal. And I just can't get shots of the movie out of my head. It is, it is nasty in your face while also being sort of uh, sober and um, funny and grim in, in, in ways that are both playful and like deadly serious. It just watching it again and seeing all the different pieces come together was such a satisfying experience. And it's, it's the cinema score is terrible because yeah it's a it's a, it's a feel bad horror movie <laughs> but it's kind of, it's kind of feel bad that's um so designed to be punishing and so designed to be feel bad that it's actually fun it's not it doesn't leave you feeling like your life's ruined it makes it just leaves you feeling like oh man that was a really really intense intense thing and one of these days I want to talk about the thematic messages of this movie and why I connect to it in ways beyond it being just a impeccably crafted movie um but that's story. That's a, that's a spoiler discussion, and I don't want to have that here. Uh, but on the other end of the spectrum, I've been uh, binge watching ER on Hulu with my wife, who grew up watching ER, and has the show built into her DNA. And I never did. It's brand new to me, and I'm surprised by how good it is. Uh, I know that later seasons probably get soapier, and I'm not looking forward to that. But at least season one, uh, late season one, where I am now. It's a really good show, really good characters. Uh, I appreciate how each episode is a series of short stories that are all thematically connected, sort of a proto- early, early prototype of the Mad Men model. Uh, and I like the show when it's at the hospital. I like it a little less when it leaves the hospital. But I- I'm addicted. I like watching ER, and I'm probably going to commit to watching all 13 seasons, is it? And all 300-something episodes. But that, that was my weekend, Hereditary, ER, and uh, Cat Poop. That is pretty insane. Uh, it, well, Brad isn't the only person who saw Ocean's 8. HT also saw the movie. HT, what did you think? I I was entertained by it. I will say that I agree with a lot of the criticisms, about, the criticisms that Brad had in that there was a real distinct lack of, lack of conflict. And the style, too, that Soderbergh brought to the Ocean's the first three Ocean's films uh, was missing as well. I don't think Gary Ross really has that visual eye or that kineticism that Garrett, that Soderbergh has, which is unfortunate because it wastes such a talented cast. And that's where I'm going to uh, disagree with Brad and that I think there was a lot of chemistry with the, with the cast. I really enjoyed just seeing uh, Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett banter and walk around New York in billowing, beautiful coats the entire time, even though they were kind of carbon copies of the character types of George Clooney and Brad Pitt's characters. I enjoyed it. And um, I think that they're each of the, even though everyone else got very little screen time, they did get to shine through a bit. 
uh, especially Anne Hathaway, who was amazing in this film. I don't think we were talking enough about how good Anne Hathaway is in this and how funny and enjoyable uh, she is in this, this sort of self-satirical role in which she pokes fun like her own image. Uh, and I like that a lot of people are realizing now that Anne Hathaway did not deserve all that hate that she got for the past like few years unnecessarily i don't really i still am really unsure why uh everyone started hating on her just because she tries hard it's ridiculous and i'm glad that people are finally realizing how good and funny she is in this film so yeah oceans eight was um it was definitely just like a very junk food cinema for me uh something that you can watch and enjoy but kind of forget after a little bit but still like have have some fun takeaways like Anne Hathaway is great and I want to buy all of Kate Blanchett's tux- uh, tailored suits <laughs> and uh, y- you also saw Hereditary yeah it was a big 180 for me the next day uh, way, I watched how, her- how, how can you like read a trilogy of books and go out and see two <laughs> movies I, I I couldn't even see these movies so I didn't go outside <laughs> other than to uh, go to these movies. I like I had plans to see Ocean's 8, so I had to go to do, to do that. And then Hereditary also made plans to do that on Saturday. But then the rest of the weekend, I was just like staying inside my room and reading these books. And it was pretty bad, actually. I probably should not have done that. But it was rainy for a lot of the weekend, so it was okay. Um, but yes, Hereditary. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And um, I definitely... Is it a spoiler to say that it's about grief? Because I want to... No, it, no, that's not a spoiler. That's fine. Okay. I really like how it becomes... Uh, it's at first portrayed as a tale about grief. It's like this sort of familial horror film. But I, I was really unfortunate in that I saw it with an audience that did not really was not along for the ride. Uh, I think my audience was definitely in the in the theater for a more traditional horror film. So I could feel them sort of getting restless for the first half of the film, which was really good and really moody and tense, but a, def- a different type, kind of tension than you get in a regular horror film. It was more about the um, character-driven tension that we have um, from the sort of grief plot. And um, when we have that those final scenes that Jacob was talking about, no one was reacting as much as I was. So I was very upset about that because I really enjoyed the film. But I feel like if I had a better audience to watch it with, it would have been even more enjoyable for me. I did get nightmares from it for a while. I've been very uh, staying up late reading my books. I've been like going to bed at like 3 a.m. and being like, wow, it's really scary right now. <laughs> Um, I, I did mention that this film has like a really low cinema score. What was it like D minus or something? Um, it was D plus. D plus. Uh, and a lot of people have been asking on Twitter, you know, what is the point of cinema scores if people are actually like, you know, critics are actually liking this movie. So I thought we'd bring this up re- really quick right here that Jacob, what is the point of a cinema score? Oh, God. I feel like it's an antiquated concept. It it comes from uh, polling audiences outside of theaters in Los Angeles uh, to get a uh, mainstream consensus on a wide-release movie. And I, I'm honestly, I'll cop to it. I'm not too sure how the information is useful or why it's used or how anybody accepts See, it because it just it's just a handful of L.A. theaters. I mean, who, who cares? Well, I agree there in the low sample rate, but I, I do think that it has a purpose, but not in a purpose of like, what do people think of this movie? I think the cinema score tells us more of what uh, people were expecting versus what they got. 
and it's 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 mainly used for marketing uh so it's you know like with a a film that is marketed in a way that might be deceiving might get a lower cinema score does that make sense um and it it actually occurs to me that a24 has had had a lot this is an a24 movie right yes they've had a lot of low cinema score uh, so are they just are they releasing movie are they marketing movies to the mainstream that the mainstream doesn't want to see oh 100 percent uh <laughs> they're trying uh, to they, trick the mainstream into seeing these artsy in the indie kind of movies yeah i don't want to say too much because hg's working on an article about this and i'm really looking forward to hearing her thoughts on it but a24 has released some of the best horror movies in, of, of the of the century so far uh but almost all of them have had like knee-jerk reactions from mainstream audiences because they were sold as being something traditional when they're definitely not for sure chris what have you been watching um i watched uh the first four episodes of hulu's new stephen king series castle rock and i can't tell you anything about it because i'm embargoed but i just wanted to brag that i watched it so there's that (laughs) um well i'll jump in real quick and say i have not spoken to chris about this but i've heard from other people who remain anonymous who have seen it that's very good so hmm I can't. I, I cannot comment uh, one way or the other. But I did watch it. Um, uh, I also watched uh, A Wrinkle in Time, the uh, the recent Disney movie um, on Blu-ray, and I really did not like it. And I I wish I did. I wanted to like it because I like you know everyone involved with this movie, and I thought it looked interesting. But uh, I hate to say it, but this is a a bad movie. It's just really poorly put together and everyone in it is kind of bad even though they're all generally good actors none of them really uh, do that good of a job here and i'm I'm really not sure what happened it's like (laughs) it's like this weird fluke where supremely talented people all got together and somehow made a a bad movie I, i i i i'm almost like fascinated to read like a uh, a behind-the-scenes look at how this movie came together just to try and figure out what went wrong because this should have worked. Uh, the concept is good. Everyone involved with it is good, and it just doesn't work. And I can't even really pinpoint what is wrong with it exactly. It just felt wrong watching it. Like It felt like, I don't know, it, it felt like a, a first draft. Like I was watching someone's early idea that didn't get hammered out. You know, They didn't hammer out all the kinks, something like that. Yeah, it's almost ambitiously bad in a, in a way, and I, I I kind of appreciate that that like you know it's not just like uh, half-assed; it's just like a lot of uh, interesting but wrong decisions. Yeah, like it it has like it's a movie that has like the best intentions, and so like I can't say like I hated it because its heart is in the right place, but nothing works, and it, it's it's almost impressive how badly everything plays out. Okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, I guess I'll start this off of what I've not been eating. Uh, and that is, uh, I order a lot from Postmates, which is a uh, food delivery service, kind of like Uber for food. And you order stuff and they deliver it. Uh, a couple times last week, I ordered food on Postmates. I'm wondering if this has happened to any of you. Uh, and um, I got a notification on my phone. Your food is arriving. You know, notification a minute later your food has been delivered. And I was like, I haven't gotten my food. And, you know, I call, you know, go, uh, I contacted the tech support and they, they gave me a code, you know, a, 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 um, 
they refunded my order and stuff like that. But I, I kind of think that now people with with this uh, surge of people using Postmates, especially in in Los Angeles, that I wonder if like people are like walking down the street, and then when the Postmates driver pulls up and says, "Are you Peter?" They're just like, "Yes," and then they take the food. Do you know what I mean because you, you you could tell that someone delivering something, and they're just going to give it to the person. Like, has any have any of you had this experience of ordering with Postmates or Uber Eats and it it being delivered but not to you? Not with Postmates, but once a drunk guy tried to get into my Uber. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I think it's one of the, one of the benefits of living in a house. Uh, in in my case, is that it's very hard for me to intercept my food because they because I have the house number, then they knock on my door and I answer it. But I feel like living in Los Angeles, where you're living in a, in a condo or an apartment, and things a lot more dense, and people are like wandering around your oh, around yeah. your outside of your home at all times. It's it's a lot more of a threat. And, and there's like no parking anywhere, so I think like you know the Postmates driver probably doesn't want to try to find parking, so they like you know flag down the nearest person that they think could possibly be the person they're delivering to. Um, but I don't know. I, I thought it was worth, uh, mentioning, uh, and, uh, I just want to like bring up, uh, well, IHOP has renamed themselves the International House of Burgers. What is going on here, guys? This sounds like a horrible rename. Like, is this a joke? I mean, I know when I would go to IHOP, the first thing I would ask is what are your burger specials? Because... <laughs> That's just what I like to do is go to an international house of pancakes and get get what they're not known for. Uh, I, according to my social media, according to people um, that apparently know more than me, it's a temporary renaming, but IHOP's hiding the part. It's temporary. I guess it's just part of their plan to try to say, we're not just breakfast. We also serve hamburgers. But my whole thing is there are dozens, if not hundreds, of chains that serve good burgers that people like and enjoy. IHOP is a breakfast place, and people like it and enjoy the breakfast place. I feel like they're trying to enter a market where there's no room for them, and nobody cares. Nobody cares about an IHOP burger. Nobody will, even with a special like this. I'm not going to lie. As somebody who thoroughly enjoys cheeseburgers and always tries cheeseburgers as often as I can at various restaurants and things like that, because every cheeseburger is different, um, I will go to IHOP, and I will try one of these these burgers and see if they're doing it right. Um, But... Otherwise, yeah, like, I mean, it's it's definitely, you know, um, a stunt that's getting them a lot of attention, but more so they're just being... But is it mocked. negative attention? Yeah, well, that's the thing I was going to say, is they're, they're being mocked for it more than anything. Like, even the, the sassy Wendy's Twitter account is uh, replying to people saying, yeah, we're not really worried about a place that couldn't get pancakes right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if it's a temporary thing to bring attention, it, it just seems like they're going to get, like, you know negative uh feedback both ways because then people are just going to think that you know they you know changed it back because of all the negative uh social media and publicity they got from the rename but uh yeah let's move on brad what have you been eating oh i'm always trying new things um and uh, there's now there's a new kind of milky way out that's milky way fudge uh where they replaced the usual uh, sort of nougaty filling with a, a fudge filling to pair with the caramel, um, and it's it's pretty good actually. I I actually think that I might prefer it over the regular Milky Way, um, and so it's I, as far as I know, I think that it might only be available in minis right now. But there was a time when there was like a bigger bar that was available that I saw at a gas station once. Um, so yeah, it's it's a, a nice variation on that you know old standby. And then Lipton has been putting out these new 
uh, half and half flavors. Um, I, I really like Arnold Palmer's, the, the big Arizona tea cans that are iced tea and lemonade. Uh, I've noticed that Lipton has been doing a lot more as far as varying the flavors of, of theirs in bottles. And so uh, recently they have, I saw a strawberry melon one, and then I also saw a, uh, an iced tea and watermelon lemonade flavor as well. Um, and they're really good. They're definitely very sweet, um, but I, I really enjoy make the different flavors of lemonade that there are out there, from, um, especially once now that the summer is getting uh, heating up and I'm getting thirsty a lot more and don't always necessarily want a water. Uh, so yeah, they're pretty good. I've, I've spotted them at like a bunch of different gas stations. So if you're out and about, keep an eye out for them. I've been eating mostly my usual diet of junk food and nonsense. Uh, and as somebody who enjoys junk food and nonsense, I find myself consistently let down by the Cheesecake Factory, which is a place I go to maybe once every few months thinking, I love the I'm gonna, Cheesecake Factory. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find something delicious here in this oversized menu in this gaudy over over decorated location i'm gonna find something amazing and delicious and bad for me that i'd love every time i go there i get i feel let down by it peter what do you like on the menu there my favorite thing on the cheesecake factory menu is actually an appetizer called the buffalo blast have you had that that's what we ordered last night peter and i was so disappointed really Maybe they cooked them badly in Austin, Texas. Maybe, uh, or maybe TK Factory just doesn't realize that I want some buffalo in my buffalo blast. Like you tear apart all those little buffalo pack. What it is? It's a a deep fried pocket stuffed with um, buffalo chicken and and not and stuff. And I say and stuff because I don't know what else is in it. <laughs> I have no yeah. idea. And you whip it open. There's like maybe like a teaspoon of actual chicken inside a massive deep fried crust. And I love my deep fried crust, but this is not the best deep fried crust I've ever had. So Th- this I was, sounds I was like they may, may have made it bad at your Cheesecake Factory. Because I've had Buffalo Blast many times and usually it's filled with uh, buffalo chicken inside. I think the mistake you guys are making is getting food at Cheesecake Factory. Just get cheesecake and go home. I do. That's that's what I usually do. I usually call in uh, and go pick up cheesecake um, for me and my wife. I take it home and watch movies and eat cheesecake. But sometimes it's right next to um, a bookstore I always shop at. So sometimes I'm just walking by and I go, you know what? Maybe this time. Maybe this is the time. And I I need to stop doing that. Okay. So what was the other horrible thing you had at Cheesecake Factory? God, I, I've never had like, the good thing there. Like I've had burgers and sandwiches <laughs> and just everything over the years. So like every time it comes up, I go like, "Oh, this is like almost food." Look, I'm a guy who likes chilies. I like chilies and TGI Fridays. I like my chain junk. I like my bullshit. But <laughs> for some reason, um, I, I will eat an entire plate of chilies, Southwestern egg rolls. But you put TTA Factory in front of me, I get, I just feel sad. Uh, this this is making me depressed because I, I, I really I really enjoyed Cheesecake Factory and I it's one of those things I hate to admit uh, because you know everybody kind of like looks down on chain restaurants here but uh, yeah I don't know uh, let's move on to what we've been playing Jacob uh, what have you been playing well not quite playing but a, a game that I've been trying to finish a, a Netrunner Android Netrunner it's a uh, game published by Fantasy Flight Games and it's coming to an end. I guess a fast version to explain what Netrunner is. It's a uh, cyberpunk-themed science fiction card game for two players, and it's asymmetrical, where one player is the hacker trying to break into the database of a evil Blade Runner-esque corporation, and the other player is corporation. They have to put up defenses and try to keep the runner out of their system and kill them or, or, or destroy their finances. 
and it's the best card game I've ever played. Thematically, mechanically, it is sound, it is tight, and it is amazing. And it's a it's a living card game, which is uh, Fantasy Flight Games' name for um, for, where for, for stealing money from your wallet. <laughs> yeah, but it's not like Magic. Where, where Magic, you have to go buy a booster pack for four bucks, open it, and you get random cards. You have to spend hundreds of dollars to find what you want. Uh, a living card game. There's a new card pack of 60 cards every month. You spend 15 bucks. You know what you're getting. You can choose to skip it. It's all out there. It's all open information. And you can just um, spend as little or as much as you want. And I've been a very casual player. I've, I've competed. I haven't like built decks competitively, although I do follow the tournament scene to see what's going on. And what ended up happening is uh, Wizards of the Coast, who owns the game design for Netrunner, they own the, the core mechanics. Uh, whereas um, Fantasy Flight owns the Android universe in which the game is set. Uh, the uh, deal to renew that license uh, came up and will not be renewed, and the, the press release from Fantasy Flight suggested they were surprised by this. Uh, they had just put out a new revised uh, core box set of the main game. They had planned a new expansion for uh, October. So clearly, Wizards of the Coast has plans for Netrunner design, and Fantasy Flight was despite this being one of their most successful games, this was t- totally caught off guard. So I w- pulled up my Netrunner cards. I found out that e- casually collecting, I was missing a certain number of decks, certain number of card packs. So, so I spent the weekend running out the game stores, picking up ones I didn't have, uh, reorganizing my cards. And now looking at everything um, of the... God, how many card packs are there? There are... Looking at my, actually, I have my, uh, my, my, my charts open right now, so I can tell you. <laughs> this is a uh, game that requires you to have charts of. There are uh, forty-eight card packs or small card packs, in addition to the big box expansions, and I only need ten left to complete the collection. Uh, so I'll be, you know, looking up, looking for those over the next few months, uh, picking them up, and hopefully people don't try to jack up the price just because it's going out of print in October. Uh, so we'll see. It's a great game. I'm looking forward. To, actually, looking forward to being a complete game. When when I, when I have all the cards and the game stops evolving, I can have friends over and say, "Hey, let's all build decks. We have the entire game here. Let's do it." As opposed to, "Hey, if we're going to play this, we need to stay up to date at all times," which is really hard for a lot of people to do. So I'm going to miss Netrunner. I feel bad for everybody who played competitively, but I'm looking forward to being complete and finished and having it all on my shelf and ready to actually be, be played more casually. This is also interesting because Asmodee, the company that owns Fantasy Flight Games, I had heard through uh, through the rumblings that they were trying to uh, get a Netrunner movie uh, made in Hollywood. So I'm not sure if you know this is going to affect things because they still own the Android universe. They just don't own uh, the Netrunner game, which is... A little bit confusing, but anyways, uh, let's move on to Brad, and uh, he's always, you know, playing not games, but music, so what music have you been playing this week, Brad? Yeah, the soundtrack for Hearts Beat Loud, the indie gem from Sundance starring Nick Offerman and Kiersey Clemens, came uh, came out last Friday, uh, since the movie is now playing in limited theaters across the country, and will be expanding into other theaters uh, as the weeks progress. And if you haven't got a chance to listen to the soundtrack yet, or if you've seen the movie and you are, have the songs stuck in your head, like I did afterwards, the whole soundtrack is available on Spotify and Apple music and all that jazz, all the places you can buy and stream music. And so I've been listening to the original songs, uh, from that soundtrack, uh, all songs that are uh, performed by Nick Offerman and Kiersey Clemens with music, uh, by Keegan DeWitt, which is pretty fantastic. Very cool. That does it. 
for today's edition of Slash Film Daily. You can find all of our work on SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can find Slash Film Daily published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and television and deeper dives into the great features from SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your questions, comments, concerns uh, to Peter at SlashFilm.com. I thank everybody for all the good uh, words on our discussion of toxic fandom. It seems like you guys uh, really dug that episode. Uh, please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow.